for uh, your kindness toward us, your unceasing goodwill toward us, your absolute determination to do well by us is, uh, it's amazing. It's just remarkable. It's way too tame a term, but it is remarkable, and we thank you. Uh, even right now, I want to thank you that you have uh, really good activity going on all around this camp, and uh, you're not distracted by any of the other things uh, so that you can't be here. And we're very glad for that. We pray for everything that's going on right now. I, I want to pray for the class right now in the, in the tabernacle and give Bonnie, please, a real sense of your spirit and everybody there ears to hear. And, and thank you, Father, that uh, you can do the right thing by all of us all the time, and you always do. Now, I pray for this class. I pray that I will say only that which is true and helpful, and I pray that our hearts will hear it uh, in a way that's true and helpful also, and especially that we might just say to your spirit, now help yourself to us. Uh, we know we can trust you. So we you know, give you the scalpel and say, do what needs to be done. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So um, in the first three sessions, we've tried to cover uh, most, uh, at least touch on most of the things that are in Matthew chapter 5. In uh, this session, we're going to try and cover all of Matthew chapter 6. And uh, then, well, with the exception of the Lord's Prayer, or Apprentice Prayer, uh, I would call it in the middle of the chapter, and then... Tomorrow, being our last session, we'll try and cover, lightly for sure, all of chapter 7. So there is a lot of material to cover. On the other hand, especially in chapter 6, you'll see that there's a quite a large chunk of it that deals with uh, basically the same principle, and that's where we want to start today. So if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6, and we'll get, begin right at the top, and we'll read uh, the first four verses, and that, I think, will get us uh, rolling for today. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now I, I will tell you that I have problems uh, with every single thing I've talked about so far. I just do. but none of them as frequently as this one. I just got to tell you. So I don't, uh, you know, if I, uh, otherwise I'm going to feel like I've just been dishonest. So there, another thing outed on me. Um, let's see if I can make this roll. Oh, I don't know what's happened there, but let's just leave it that way. I guess I didn't animate this screen. I just added it uh, yesterday, I guess, and forgot to animate it. But First questions first. Oh, well, see there, we got rid of it fast, didn't we? Is anyone concerned with what people think of you? Oh, I'm not the only one? Okay. Is anyone else anxious to get credit for the good you do? Oh, I'm not the only one there either, huh? Uh, though, those, of course, are related and um, also very good desires, by the way. They're a part of who we are as human beings, uh, but they're just misplaced. And I hope we can really get that. That's very important. I know we're, kinda, we're just getting started, but this is fund foundational to what Jesus says here. And we really need to get it. For the first 18 verses of this chapter are uh, primarily about this issue. In fact, it's fascinating to me that the Lord's Prayer is given to us in the midst of this issue. Just fascinating to me. 
And it's, it's studying the Lord's Prayer uh, really a lot, uh, beginning in 1999, uh, changed my life. And we talked about that prayer two years ago when I was here, and we just can't talk about it now. But to me, it's just fascinating that it is right here in the midst of this, these three illustrations of uh, wanting to be seen for being good. Now, remember that I mentioned the, the four worldview questions. See, they're all playing here. I don't refer back to them enough. But one of the great questions is, who's a well-off or a blessed person? And then, who's a good person? This is a critical question. Everybody wants to know that, really. Everybody. And everybody wants to be considered good. Every one of us at some point, probably, or well, maybe not some of you younger folks, but every one of us at some point has uh, thought either on our own or been challenged to think about what would you want people to say about you in your funeral. It's actually not a bad exercise to write the obituary you'd like to see for yourself. Maybe a little more, but, but it's not a bad exercise, actually. A while back, I was thinking about that, and uh, I felt like the Father said to me, well, let's think a little beyond that. What's it going to be like, really, when Jesus takes you around heaven and introduces you to folks? Well, how's he going to be describing you to them? He's not into flattery, by the way. He's not into flattery. For sure, he's going to be saying, now, this is John, my dearly loved child. No problem with that. We know that. But he's also going to be honest with, look what I've done with John in his heart. Look what he's become. And uh, sort of like God boasting about Job, you know, he's going to be doing that. Uh, and what's, how much is there going to be to say? You know, what would he actually say about me? Because there's going to be honesty there. Everything's going to be open. It's going to be complete honesty. How would, he, how would I want him to be able to describe me? It's not even impossible, of course, because we know this happened with Job, that there's a discussion like that now. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. I'm not saying this. I'm just saying it's not impossible. Uh, my, my parents are both in glory. And it would be very interesting to know what conversations might be going on about me. Yeah, really, I don't know whether, what's really happening there, but it is a real world. It's far more real wor than this world, actually. These are, as C.S. Lewis would talk about, the shadow lands. There, you know, if we were there now, we wouldn't even be able to bend the grass with our feet. It's just so much more substantive. Raindrops would go through us like bullets. We're actually becoming the kind of person that can stand that. Some people have said years ago, quite wisely, the fires of hell are hotter than, or of heaven are hotter than the fires of hell. It's just that we can take it without it harming us at all. Now, you don't want to go too far with that. That's all speculation. But the idea being that people in hell are becoming less and less and less and less human, and the people in glory are becoming more and more and more fully flourishing as humans. And, of course, we get to enter heaven now, as Jesus says. You want to go to heaven? Go now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, that doesn't mean there's not you know, the full heaven and glory that we're thinking about in the future, for sure. But that will be more of a, just a continuance and transformation of our relationship with him now, and our partnership with him, our walking with him now. Well, that didn't intend to say any of that. But anyway... We were designed to live by the smile of the Father. I really wish we would get this. This is very important. We are designed to get energy from approval. Does anybody else get energy from anybody's approval? Oh, isn't that the truth? It's nothing like someone's disapproval to just suck the energy right out of you. It's, a matter, it's amazing how good a day you can be having until you hear, hear someone say something critical about you. <laughs> We were designed, actually, for that. As human beings, we live from our heart. We live from our spirit 
or our will. That's what drives us, and that's what gives life to us. And our heart was meant to live off the uh, praise of God. That's what it was meant to live off, his smile, his approval. Now, think about uh, when uh, God through gave Moses a command regarding Aaron and the priests in the Old Testament about their relationship uh, with the people and how they would put God's name on the people. He said, now this is how they will put my name on them. And it, I don't know if you realize that's what he said because I'm going to quote a text that's very familiar to you from Numbers chapter 6. But then he, when he finishes that, he says, this is how you will put my name on them. This is how they'll be identified as mine. And he said to Aaron, now this is what you say over the people. Now Jehovah bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lock eyes with you and make you whole. You, said, you wanted to say the word peace, but that's the word shalom, which is Humpty Dumpty put back together again. Okay, That's what shalom means. All the king's horses and all the king's men cannot do it, but God can. This is the lion lying down with the lamb. This is everybody resting in the shade of his own vine and fig tree. This is children playing on the den of adders. This is creation being restored to its full flourishing and initial intention. This is what God has in mind for us. And this is what he says will happen when we're locked eyes with him. We are really designed to live in intimate relationship with our Father. And that's where we get our life. Now, Jesus knows this. Did we mention that he's smart? Yeah. Yeah. He knows this. And he, I, I'm telling you, oftentimes when I read these 18 verses or just think about them, I am thinking that he's, uh, you know, he's got some standard of rightness out there, but it doesn't necessarily relate to who I am as a person. And I have to figure out how to do this, but it sure isn't going to be any fun. And Jesus is saying, would you remember who I am and what my intentions are towards you, John? I'm just trying to help you have life. And I want to tell you that you can't have it that way. So that's, uh, we were designed to live off the smile of the Father, but pursuing praise from people just sucks the life out of us. It's, uh, it's a branch in the vine that needs to be pruned. It needs to be taken away, and Jesus knows that. And so, lovingly, he wants us to rid us of it. Now, I, this text, by the way, in John chapter 5, sometimes just haunts me. Jesus says to the religious experts of his day, you, basically, he says, you cannot believe because you're still receiving the praise of men. That is a, a powerful statement. Now, if you try and look through this spatially, I think you can figure it out. Um, I, for example, can look here in Sandy's eyes, and I can't be at the same time looking at Melva's, right? Can't. And that's what Jesus is trying to say here. To these religious experts, what you're looking into are the wrong eyes. You're looking for approval from the wrong place. And that place can't really give it. Very, it's, it's a broken cistern. You know, as God said to Jeremiah, tell the, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and dug for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's what seeking the approval from people is. Now, we were designed for approval. This is what we have to remember. We were not designed to be nothing, to be a null set. You know, that's Buddhism and Hinduism. Their, their dream is to be free of all consciousness eventually, you know, just be absorbed into the holy other. And that's not what I was designed for. I was designed to be more and more conscious all the time, with all of my faculties more and more focused all the time, but focused where? And I'm designed to be, receive praise from God. Now, this is what is at the root of Jesus saying what he says here. There's great reason for this. He knows this. He knows that I will not possibly flourish as a human being 
and therefore glorify my Father who is in heaven. Remember, it, this is to your Father's glory that you bear much fruit from John 15. I won't be, as Irenaeus said, that uh, the glory of God is man fully alive. Well, I can only be a fully alive man glorifying God when I'm receiving life from him. And that will not happen when I'm looking somewhere else for life. That's, that's it. See? So if it's, no matter whether it's in managing my own life by my anger or my contempt or my uh, fantasized desire, you know, trying to satisfy myself with those things or manipulating other people with my words to try and get my way because I'm in charge of my own life after all and to the master of my own destiny, if you will. If I'm trying to do that and manage my own life, on my own resources, it will always fail. And Jesus knows this. And now he's just moving into another category. And he's saying, now, when you're trying to manage this great hunger, this great need that you have for uh, approval, may I say for glory. Glory having two primary components. One is um, just the actual substance of who we are. I love this. Uh, there's a line by an old Scottish commentator, preacher by the name of Jowett. And he, this line is just such a great line. He says, glory is the bloom of character. Think about that for a minute. Glory is the bloom of character. I think sometimes we think that glory is something that's been pasted on us from outside or that we can set on our shelf, you know, that sort of thing. But it's not. Glory is the bloom of character. Well, I was designed for that part of it, that glory which is you know, just being uh, objectively you know, resplendent, a saint, a hagias, a spectacular one. And the other aspect of glory is praise. Praise. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. C.S. Lewis calls that the divine accolade. Just imagine it, really. I'm getting a few goosebumps now when you really try to imagine. Really, just try to imagine what it would be like to, to lock eyes, not for a second, but for timelessness with the king of the universe in here. Good job. Now, we can all relate to this for ourselves and probably for our kids. I, honestly, I have one goal for my kids. I just want to be standing and peeking around the corner when they get the th thumbs up from the king. That's what we were designed for. So that's the thing. Desiring to be recognized for being good is exactly what we were designed for. The problem is we can't have that unless we actually become good, and we can't become good when we're pursuing praise from people, which is by spending our money on that which is not bread, to use Isaiah's phrase. Why are you spending your money on that which is not bread? It doesn't satisfy. Come to me. I'm the real deal, you know, God says. You can get from me uh, that which will satisfy you forever. So as human beings, I say we live presently either inside or outside of the kingdom, the range of God's effective will. We will either live yoked with Jesus in interactive relationship with our Father in the heavens or not. Now most people, uh, probably most Christians, and often myself, I will say, do not live regularly in conscious interactive relationship with our Father. And Jesus said his present kingdom is available to anyone who will enter. Entering and living within the kingdom requires changing our minds, remember. Jesus and John the Baptist using that word repent, which means rethink your thinking or change your mind. Literally change your mind, metanoeo. And so it requires changing our mind about lots of things. And one of the things now we must change our mind about is from, wh from where we pursue approval. So um, anyway, we talked about that. It really requires changing our minds, and we won't emphasize that anymore. 
There's a lot of stuff there. When we become like God, we're salt and light, and we will shine before men so they will see our true goodness and glorify our Father. And we are to be visible to a watching world. This is, you know, from Monday. And we are to actually show the world what God is like. This fulfills our essential role in the universe, to image God. As images, we reveal him. We show the whole universe what God is like and how wise he is. It's really interesting how there's basically no Christian that doesn't recognize they were created in the image of God. And then you ask them, so what's your role in the universe? There's no connection in their minds between the essence of who I was created to be and what my role is. If my role, if my essence is that I'm created in the image of God, his self-portraits, I will not show the world very well what he's like unless I really look like him. Like him is what is the operative uh, commission, really, of an of a individual. So again, I'll go back as I have a number of times to Ephesians 5.1. Be imitators of God then as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That's what God does. That's the nature of God, to love. So if I'm going to show you any true picture of what God is like, I'm going to have to love. I don't have to preach. I don't have to know much. I just have to love. And that love's going to have to be at my expense. Love always is going to bring with it a cost. And so... But if I'm going to become the kind of person who actually has goodwill toward the people around me, especially those the nearest to me, then I'm going to have to take Jesus' good advice about how to become, as he said, as we talked about last time, perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, you see. Complete like he is. That is just it. You know, the whole Christian message isn't that terribly complicated, but it does go well beyond uh, you know, ask Jesus to save you from your sins. That's, of course, critical. We couldn't be in this relationship with him unless he had paid the price for that to happen. But Jesus is often talking about something significantly beyond that, actually being restored to the whole being that we were designed to be. And he's in the process, if we'll cooperate, of that happening, being uh, rehydrated, if you will, by the Spirit into the image of God. Now, um, we are be, to be whole in the same way he is. Holy good with genuine goodwill to everybody. The great risk now, leading, segueing into today's text, the great risk is that we will try to appear like we're on the inside with God, like we're imitators of God, when we really are not. When we become Christians we begin to recognize that God values generosity. God also values intimate relationship with him in prayer. And God also values spiritual disciplines, such as fasting, that show our full commitment to him and reliance upon him. He does value those things. And when we begin to realize those things, then we show that, uh, well, I don't know if that's the way I want to start that. What, what, what the great risk is, is that we want other people to think that that's where we are in intimate relationship with the Father. And as soon as that happens, we've turned away from his eyes to someone else's eyes. And now we've turned away from the spring of living water toward a broken cistern. Jesus knows this. Honestly, when I read this, sometimes I do think, as I mentioned a minute ago, that Jesus is just giving me some command that I need to figure out how to obey, but I don't recognize that it's an essential aspect of actually being rehydrated by his spirit into the image of God that I learn to live off his smile, that I learn to live for his approval 
uh, not for the approval of other people. In order for that to happen, I'm going to need the spiritual disciplines that Jesus here gives, these three spiritual disciplines, and do to, in order to do these things. These are just examples. Obviously, it could be anything. It could be leading worship. It could just be singing. It could be anything, not necessarily in the church. It could be anything at all, acts of righteousness. And then he gives three illustrations. Anything at all that we're doing that would be a right thing to do. And then doing them for the wrong reasons. And the most prevalent wrong reason is so other people think highly of us. This does great harm to us and to the reputation of God as well. It's actually worse to pretend with no intention of actually becoming imitators of God than to uh, not pretend at all. Now, if you think about Jesus' day, you just know how uh, more readily the people like Zacchaeus and Mary Magdalene came to Jesus than the religious experts of the day who wanted everybody to think highly of them. In fact, the reason they ultimately killed Jesus was because they were afraid they would lose their status. In miniature, we are ourselves denying Jesus every time we're protecting our status. Whenever we're protecting our reputation in the eyes of other people, this is hard for me, but it's true. Whenever I'm more concerned about what you're thinking of me than what my father's thinking of me in any given moment, I'm in this ditch. And it's an easy ditch to get into. Very easy. I feel like Asaph in Psalm 73. He says, where my feet almost slipped. <laughs> you know? It's like sort of the, like a mountain climber in scree. You know? It's just so easy. Now, thankfully, God doesn't get mad. He's not like me. Um, and he's just c saying, come on, John, come on. And I can return to thinking about whether uh, what I'm saying and doing was, is with a sufficiently pure heart that the Spirit might actually use it uh, for you. And it's fine for me to be thinking about you as long as I'm thinking about your good, your good, you see. If, as soon as I'm thinking about how you're thinking about me, now I'm in trouble. And it's so insidious. Oh, my goodness. Any of you who, well, all of you know the difference between wanting what's good for someone else and wanting them to think you're doing what's good for them, <laughs> right? The one is to feed my ego. The other is to actually be of benefit to them. And that's a, that's a hard thing to get with. But Jesus wants us to become the kind of people who naturally do the right and loving thing with no reference to whether people are watching. In fact, he's, Jesus has a sense of humor. We often don't give him credit for it. But, but he will say, so your left hand doesn't even know what your right hand is doing. You know, that, that complete uh, lack of concern about whether anybody's paying attention at all other than the Father. And, and just, in fact, wanting to do the right thing for someone without reference to whether anybody ever recognizes it or not. And so he gives us these illustrations. And I do want to emphasize what I just mentioned briefly yesterday, that pretending is not the same thing as practicing. So if you uh, know you ought to do something right for someone and you uh, know that you're struggling with the a problem that you want them to think highly of you, you still do it. But you do it with a, with a perspective that I'm practicing to be the right kind of a person, not just faking it, not pretending to be the right kind of a person. And that's really a very critical element. You know, it's like the difference between uh, going to the gym every day for hours and dribbling and shooting and watching Michael uh, Jordan videos than just wearing his tennis shoes. We like Jesus' tennis shoes. And we've got his T-shirt, too. <laughs> and we might even wear his cap backward. <laughs> but are we practicing? Are we going to the gym? You know, are we doing? Are we imitating? Are we watching him and how he does it and then 
practicing right alongside of him to learn to do life just like he would do life if he were living my life? That's, that's the question. So he says, be careful then not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now this sounds like a punishment. It's not. First of all, I want to make note of a very critical component of every single one of these illustrations of Jesus. And that is, um, not actually in this, this is the ESV, I think. This isn't translated as well as it should be. But uh, I wish I could draw like with a telestrator right there around those words, to be. It's a purpose clause in the Greek. It is a clause that says, for the purpose of. And so Jesus is saying, now be careful not to do what you do for the purpose of people seeing that you've done it and thinking highly of you. You know, it's not like some legalism, I can never ever write a check and let somebody else know I've done it, so probably I better just give cash or whatever, you know. I don't want the treasurer of the church being able to know how much I've given this year so that I can deduct it on my income tax or anything. I'm just going to do whatever, you know. That's not it. What it is, is why did I do it? It's always about the motive of the heart. It's always about who you're becoming as a person. And Jesus says, let me just give you a perfect little spiritual discipline that will help you with this. Figure out something really good to do that you can do for someone or for the church or for the camp or for whatever so that nobody else knows about it. You'll be surprised how that'll change your heart. Oh, maybe not just after the first time, but after the 31st time. You'll be surprised. Changes your heart. Changes who you are. It really, it's amazing how much, honestly, it's amazing how, how much uh, it, you feel like a little tug, you know, wait a minute, you know, I've got to let somebody know. Well, well, at least I do. <laughs> and what, I'll tell you what that means. That means I'm not looking at Abba. I'm looking at everybody else. This is unbelievably accurate diagnostic tool to find out for whom I'm really living. It's just amazing how Jesus is smart, and he knows this, so he's saying these things now. These aren't rules to keep. These are things to help train our hearts to be the, his kind of a heart, you see. That's the point. That's what it's all about. It's always about our heart becoming like his. And, of course, you could do all of these things all the time and still have a completely selfish heart. The point isn't about the rule. Jesus is not giving us rules. He's giving us good and great advice, actually, about how to become, have the kind of heart he has. In other words, how to actually do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. How to actually be the kind of person that loves God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and is your neighbor as yourself. Jesus honestly could care less about the rules. That isn't, it isn't a rule. In fact, he said, remember, your righteousness is going to have to be different, higher, greater than the righteousness of the rule keepers. They keep meticulous rules, for goodness sakes. They count out their garden herbs and make sure they're giving a tenth of every dill, you know, ten dill seeds. Oh, there goes one into the tithe. That's what Jesus said about them. Meticulous. You'll never, ever be more meticulous than the Pharisees and the scribes were about their rule keeping. But their inside of the cup was filthy. That's what Jesus said about them. They were like whitewashed graves, insides full of dead man's bones, and oh, how pretty on the outside we can look, and how ugly on the inside we can be. And Jesus is always aiming for the inside. And that's what these are about. So I'm, I really just need to be, and I am thankful for, uh, this great advice of Jesus that says, now John, do you want the inside clean? Do you want the inside change? Do you want to become a good tree that bears good fruit? Or are you just content with tacking fruit onto the outside that will wither, perish? And I say, well, yeah, I do want to be. 
a different tree, bearing good fruit, abiding in the vine, all of the illustrations Jesus gives. That's what I really do want. And he says, well then, let me help you. Turn your eyes. You know that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth, including the praise of men, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We were meant to live off it. It's our lifeline. And you can't be looking 180 degrees away and still be getting that life. Okay, so giving, praying, and fasting. Jesus carefully repeats four components to this instruction that I want to mention. Uh, first, we're not to undertake what appears to be righteous or godlike behavior in order to be thought good by others, even though we are not and don't even intend to be good or godlike. So that's the first thing. Second, our Father will not reward us for spiritual disciplines done to be seen by men. He can't. We've stopped drinking from the artesian well that he is when we do that. It's not something that he withholds so much as it is something we've refused at that point. Third, when we seek the recognition of men, that recognition is our reward. That's what Jesus said. That's what you're looking for. That's what you got. You got what you were looking for. You always get what you're looking for, really. Well, pretty much. I know we could make an exception to that rule, but we, if we're looking for the praise of God, if that's what we're really pursuing, the praise of God, we will, you can be sure he's faithful to give us that. If, in fact, we're looking for the praise of people, that's a little less certain, but we might, we might be able to accomplish that. Some of us get, um, you know, pretty um, crafty with our subtleness about being able to elicit the praise of people, you know. So for some people, like with kids, it's so obvious what they're trying to do. But some of us are pretty crafty. We can, you know, we can pretend that we're not looking for the praise of people and still be looking for the praise of people. And Jesus just said, no, you know, it doesn't matter how crafty you get. When you get the praise of people, you'll still just have the praise of people. And that's a broken system. That is not life. That's not where life comes from. He's always looking to change the inside of who we are so we can become the kind of, become the kind of person he is. Fourth, when we undertake religious activity or spiritual disciplines to be seen by our Father only, he gets involved. He rewards us. Now, Jesus said this. I'm not making none of these things. These are just the four things Jesus said here in each one of these illustrations. He's, he said this, your Father really rewards you. And I say there's nothing that stymies our heart progress like pride. And pride is always aimed at enhancing our own reputation among others. That's what it's always about. Including false humility, by the way. I know this very well because I resemble it so well. <laughs> and with some people, you can just spot it. You know, they have this sucking on their shoelaces sort of false humility. I'm just a worm. And they just can't wait until you say, oh, no, you're not. <laughs> I, wonder, I wonder what they would do if they'd say, well, of course you're a worm. <laughs> uh, of course, I don't think that'd be the best thing to approach, but, you know, False humility is, is at least as bad a pride as the obvious conceit and vanity that some of us are plagued with. Some of us uh, are, are plagued with both uh, varieties of that disease. Uh, pride, though, is glory gone by. Bad, I mean. We were designed for glory. Uh, we will talk about this a little bit more later, I think. But take a look at this. We were designed to receive glory from God for actually becoming what we were designed to be and thus fulfilling our role in the universe to properly exercise dominion in our own kingdoms, which are to be subjects of his kingdom, subsets, rather, of his kingdom. That is, we were designed so that glory would flow naturally from God to those who love God with their whole hearts and their neighbors as themselves. This is just another way of saying the life of God is 
is uh, mediated to me or spread out to me uh, by my focusing on him and my desire to please him by imitating him. Imitation is the highest form of flattery. And there's no way that you can glorify God if you're not genuinely attempting to be like him. I don't mean trying to convince other people you're trying to be like him. Not that. Just actually trying to be like him. Not only is it then flattering to God or glorifying to God, but it also is good for us. Isn't it absolutely amazing? For many years I've been struck with the unbelievable reality that the glory of God and my good are never in conflict. Never in conflict. There's always harmony between my good and the glory of God. Because God, being the kind of God he is, is always wanting what's good for me. And what's good for me is to become the kind of person he is. And he's the most joyful being in the whole universe. And that's what he has in mind for me. It's unbelievable. Well, I say, and this is you know, a little bit tricky in terms of the wording, but we wanted the glory that only God can have and missed the glory that only God can give. Jesus, the true prototype of human beings, which is the second Adam, did nothing autonomously. He understood he could do nothing without the Father, and this posture, including make himself of no reputation, as Paul would say in Philippians 2. I'd love to just go off on Philippians 2 for a minute. Remember how it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name. A reputation that's above every rep, every everybody other reputation. Remember, he said, "Therefore, God has done this. Therefore, He's done it. Therefore, why? Well, because He made Himself of no reputation. That is, He He didn't have concern for His own reputation, but yielded that up. I mean, in that you're talking about the reputation of reputations. You know, this is like uh, you know the, the the king. You know, going to uh, the garbage dump in Mexico or something and, and living among people there in order to try and feed them. This is, this is, that's not even anywhere near as good an illustration as what of Jesus coming to this place to take our place and so on and so forth. So he, he made himself of no reputation but took upon himself the form of a servant and uh, in being found in fashion as a man, he became obedient even unto death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And oh, how we love to quote that, because it's true. But, you know, it's so funny, what that unbelievable text, that unbelievably sort of doxology about Jesus, Paul just gets caught up in it. But do you know where he starts the paragraph? Don't, he says, now don't look only to your own interest, but look also to the interests of everybody else. Let, have the same perspective that Jesus had. Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and so on and so forth. So he said, let this mind, this changed mind, this metanoia-owed mind, this brand new perspective, this brand new worldview, if you will, this brand new Weltanschauung, as the Germans would say, this whole new way of looking at everything in life, let that be in you which was in Christ Jesus. That's what Paul was talking about. And then he just couldn't help himself, and he went on and talked about Jesus and how good it, what, what Jesus was like. We love that part of it. We love talking about what Jesus did for us. But Paul began the thing by saying, no, this is the way you should be. This is the kind of person you're aiming to be. Now, you're going to have to believe that that's where real life comes from. But that's what that was about. Okay, so let me see where we are. Uh, of course, this posture toward God and our role in the universe will lead to sacrificial service, as we see from uh, both the texts there of Jesus in John chapter 5 and Philippians 2, uh, real humility always serves, always loves. I want to talk to you just about Philippians 2 for a second again. It's, this is sort of a parenthetical, if you're okay with that. Um, in just the last year, I've learned something fascinating about the Greek in that text. And in, 
I've come to believe it's true, but there's that uh, language that says, um, and being found, being in the very nature of God, he did not think that that was something worth grasping, but basically, that's sort of the text, the way it's often translated. And, uh, e and, and so it's been translated with sort of this inference that even though he was God, he did this. And uh, I'm now being taught and told, I think it's accurate, um, thank John Ortberg for this because he, was, he told me about, told in, the, in a book about this, and uh, he was quoting some, you know, 10-pound brain Greek scholar sort of guy. And, uh, and, I, and But it just fits, it makes sense. That, and I can't even tell you the Greek tense or clause or, uh, you know, aspect of it here. But he's saying what it really says is, Precisely because he was in the nature of God, he made himself of no reputation. That's the nature of God to give. Not even though he was in the nature of God, but precisely because that's what God is like. And so, think about Ephesians 5.1 for a minute. Be imitators of God then. Be imitators of what's God like. Be imitators of God then and live like dearly loved children, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That's what God is like. God did not contravene his nature in Jesus coming to earth. He, he just lived out his nature. That's what he's like. It's almost like he couldn't even help himself. He didn't do it reluctantly. That's just who he is. Ah, oh, just thrills my heart. I mean, God's unbelievable. When we actually do what our Father wants for the right reasons, though he rewards us, when we love him with our whole hearts and our neighbor as ourselves, he rewards us. His approval sticks with us because it becomes part of our nature, our character. It produces fruit from the good tree. We need to rethink what we think about rewards from God. And if it doesn't thrill us, then we really haven't gotten it. When we get rewards from God, we are not tying some ribbon onto a tree that produces bad fruit. We are becoming a better tree that produces more good fruit. It is a part of our character, our nature, the, to become a fully flourishing human being like Jesus is, is the pinnacle of reward. It is the very best. It's becoming that kind of a being. By the way, if I don't have time to go into detail about it, but if you've not read recently C.S. Lewis's little essay, The Weight of Glory, uh, find it, read it. It's 15 pages, perhaps the best 15 pages ever written in prose in the English language. It's amazing. Some, you might have to read it. A number of times, I don't know, but it's unbelievable, and, uh, and it really fits into this subject here about the, imagine, he says, imagine being an ingredient in the divine happiness. I mean, do we really think that we can make God happy? Here's God who can speak and create another whole universe if he wants to. We don't really know how many he's even created. We don't know. He can do anything, and yet... He, he gets his pleasure from us. Unbelievable. Uh, the Weight of Glory. And it's usually found in a book with that same title. That's where you'll almost surely find it. But it's a whole series of essays in the book. But The ultimate glory he intends for us is so great, Paul describes it as an exceeding weight of glory that far exceeds all the suffering we even go through when we experience in this life. So God wants to reward us, but what's he want to reward us with? Well, he wants us to reward us with glory. But what is glory? Well, it's both becoming, it's becoming something glorious. And there, and because we've really become something glorious, we're recognized for being glorious. So it has those two aspects of actually becoming that which is fantastic, splendid, spectacular, and also being recognized for that. Because we were designed for it. That's what we were designed for. Well, the, now we're um, up to the second of the three sections we're trying to cover today. And so, yeah, we might not get to the third one. We'll see. But this one is really tagging on now to what we just talked about. 
and that is trusting Father for reward. First, I'll just mention very quickly, we have a Father. Now, for some of you, uh, you know, we ought to have just a retreat on that subject because you have such a tremendous knot in your heart when I even say the word Father because of your own relationship with your biological father has been a lot less than it should have been uh, or a lot worse than it should have been or whatever. So I understand that this could be difficult, but somehow we've got to understand that our father, our Abba, as Jesus invited us to pray, he has nothing but goodwill toward us. He has never abused anybody. He's never, um, you know, gotten his own ego involved so that he only is looking for us so that other people will think highly of him. He's, well, in Matthew 7, the next chapter, Jesus will talk about how all of the rest of us fathers as human fathers are evil in comparison and even we know how to do the right thing by our kids. Son asks for a piece of bread, you won't give him a stone. If he asks for a fish, you won't give him a snake. Even, and he says, you then, being evil, <laughs> know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more your heavenly father give good things to you? He's a way better dad than I, e I am an even better dad than I had, and I had a wonderful dad. But our, we have to be able to really understand what a good dad he is, or we will not be pursuing our reward from him. It's, un it's just unbelievably natural, built into creation, that people want the approval of their dad. I, I could spend the rest of the day today giving you illustrations of men in particular, but also some women who now, I'm thinking of one right now, 80 years old, who's still working hard every day in order to try and please his dad who hasn't been around for decades. And he never was able to please his dad when he worked for him as a boy. Many men have told me my dad never wanted a son, just a hired hand. And this is terribly damaging, of course, to the, to the psyche, the soul, the heart of a, of a person. I've had women tell me I was only ever good for washing dishes and doing laundry. That's all I was ever good for, those sort of things. So it's critical, of course, that we be the right kind of parents, but m critical to that is that we understand the kind of parent we have. I just want to give, this is not planned, but I just, I just feel compelled to say to, to you this, because undoubtedly in a group this size, there are a number of us who had very dysfunctional families and came from a father whom we could never please. First of all, I want to tell you that the Heavenly Father is more easily pleased than any human father. All it takes for you to please the Heavenly Father is for Him to know you're trying to please Him. Now, you can't fake it with Him. You know how kids will fake it. Kids will fake it and pretend they're trying to please you because they're trying to get something. And God sees right through that. But if you're actually, you know what, if you're a good parent, you know what it takes for your ch child to please you. Just to really know that's what they're trying to do with no ulterior motive. It's just amazing. You just are immediately pleased. It doesn't matter whether they've uh, drawn within the lines or not. You know, they give it to you, and if you see in their eyes the genuine desire to please you, you are pleased. How much more than your Heavenly Father, you see? Okay, so that's one thing. Second thing is, if you, ha if you had a very uh, not good relationship with your own dad, uh, and so you have a very hard struggle, which a lot of people do, of thinking about God as Father, I just strongly encourage you to seriously think, maybe even journal quite a little bit about what kind of a dad you wish you'd had. 
What, kind, what heart tones? What kind of a heart tones do you wish your dad had had? He, I wish he had been happy with me. I wish he had been patient with me. I wish he'd have spent time with me. I wish he would have treated my mother or my brother or my sisters well. I wish he wouldn't have spent so much time at the office, whatever. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish he hadn't uh, done some things that I don't even want to talk about. I wish, I wish. And you think about what kind of a dad you wish you'd had because I actually believe in the heart of every human being is the knowledge of what a good dad should be like. I think this is uh, kind of can extrapolate that from Ephesians where Paul says all paternity comes from him. But anyway, I'm not, I, if it can't, it can't. But I, I've, I've found lots of people somewhat helpful that. And then say this is what I wish I'd had or perhaps this is the kind of parent I wish I had been or I wish I was, and just really get a handle on what you think a good parent is like, and then say to the Father, help me believe you're better than this, better than what I've just described. And because we will not pursue the smile of our Father if we don't think he smiles. We will not do it. It'll be psychologically impossible. You can talk about all these disciplines you want, but you won't actually live for his reward if you don't think his reward is as good as someone else's reward, which is, has to do with his spirit to my spirit, saying, you did it, John, and I'm happy with you. See, this is what, where life comes from. We have a father, and we have to believe that. Uh, and, and John was, you know, by the time he wrote his epistles, a fairly uh, elderly guy. And he's, he's basically, I translate this way, I can't get over it, I can't get over it, I can't get over it. What great love the Father has for us that we should be called his children, and that's just what we are. As an old man, he couldn't get over it. He self-identified. They remember reading his gospel? He's the disciple whom Jesus didn't say he's the only one. He just, that he was no longer a son of thunder. He was now uh, the beloved of Jesus. And so, uh, I like this from Romans chapter 8. Um, by the way, the Holy Spirit, if I, just, if I hadn't put this verse up here, and I just put the word pneumatology on the screen. That's the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And, and it would have been fun to talk about, okay, so what are, uh, what are some of the things that are the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives and all this. So we had come up with all kinds of things, good things for sure. Um, he talks about gifting and empowering and dwelling and baptism in the Holy Spirit, all those kind of things we could talk about. But Paul mentions the Holy Spirit 30 times in the book of Romans, 30. 20 of those times are in chapter 8. And the heart of the heart of it is right here. And this is, I, I'm just going to maintain, I'm going to assert for you that the primary function of the Holy Spirit with you is this right here in this part of chapter 8 where it says, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. I wonder what dad's going to do to me now, you see. I really messed up. I'm going to get hit for this one. But you received the spirit of sonship, and by him, that spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. I would suggest to you that with all the other things that the spirit is involved in, it is a lot and they are important. The principal thing the Spirit does is whisper into my spirit that I am God's kid. That's what he does. And if I'm not hearing that, I'm quenching the Spirit somehow. Now again, that doesn't mean I ought to be afraid or God's going to beat me up. I need to pay attention. I need to give attention. It ought to be like a light on my dashboard saying, John, you need to do some you know, investigation into why you're not hearing the Spirit say to you, you're God's kid. Just witnessing, just assuring me, just saying, you're my God's kid. Let's talk about Abba for just a second. We all know. By the way, did you know that, as I'm told this, I'm not, I haven't read it all by any stretch or basically any Hebrew literature, but I am told that right to even the present day, there's not a single example in all Hebrew literature of anybody referring to God as Abba. Jesus. Abba is a very common word. 
but not for God until Jesus. And he, I got goose pimples. I mean, they're just coming right on me now. He Jesus through what he has done has said to the Father I want John too I want him to be your son and my brother I want to share my inheritance with him I want him on the inside this is Jesus and so now the role of the Spirit is to say to me, John, you're in. <laughs> You've been invited in. And you can use this intimate term with the king of the universe who's looking on you with eyes of love, more loving than any eyes that you've ever given to your sons or they've given to theirs. You, you are uh, b the beloved. You're accepted in the one he loves, namely Jesus. You're hidden with Christ in God, as Paul would say in Colossians 3. That's who you are. You, that's who you are. You know, that little, you know, like that little song that's fairly, fairly new, you know, you're a good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. It's who you are. And I'm loved by you. It's who I am. It's who I am. Sometimes I, when I'm alone, I put that on and just turn it up. I mean, turn it up. <laughs> I, I have to, I almost have to tape the windows off, you know, <laughs> just to drill it deep into me. That's who I am. When I believe that, I have no difficulty looking to him for approval. And that's when I get it, you see. We have to believe there's a father and that he rewards us. He knows every thought we have, by the way. You know, there's lots more to say here. Uh, and he does reward. Jesus says he really rewards. And, I, oh, I wanted to talk about Abraham and Moses and David. And then Jesus talking about rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. That heaven isn't just a long ways away. Although let me just say, to return to the more academic for a minute, that everybody who's a student of human personality knows that one of the things that's absolutely necessary for character development is what the psychiatrists call deferred gratification. That is, if we're always acting only for its immediate reward to us, we will never develop as persons. We'll just become more and more selfish. If we want to develop into the kind of persons who are loving, we will have to actually introduce some disciplines into our life that are deferring the gratification. Well, Jesus knew this. He's smart. Well, um, I guess that's it. Uh, I'll just stop. Uh, there's more, but that's okay. We, we didn't get to the third section, and uh, we'll try and tack that onto the front probably tomorrow. We'll see if, the, if that's what I still feel like we ought to do tomorrow. Uh, Father, um, first of all, I just, I, I want to acknowledge again that this is uh, a thorn uh, for me and it's very difficult for me to focus on your eyes and not be uh, my eyes darting sideways all the time to see who else is looking. And I do know this sucks life out of me, but it's become habituated in my flesh. And I need training out of it. And I pray that you will I know you're patient with me, so thank you for that. And I just pray that you'll continue to work with me on this. And if there's anybody else here who needs work on this too, I pray that you'd help us to really understand that the root of what we're saying here isn't so much the negative, but the positive, that Father will reward. It's where life really is. 
because you're a good, good father. It's just who you are. It's who you are. And we are loved by you. It's who we are. Would you make this real all day today? And, uh, you know, just more and more real all the time as we learn to absorb your love, to receive your love. And uh, just now, before I let you uh, think you're free, I want all of you to hear a one illustration I was just thinking about. Eugene Peterson, the uh, language scholar, who, uh, of course, wrote his own translation of the scripture called The Message, gives this anecdote. He said, Jan and I were sitting in the Frankfurt airport waiting for our flight to Israel when a flight came in from Tel Aviv. And he said we were in the big uh, sort of reception area there at the airport when this arriving flight came in. And suddenly there was this little fellow that had been playing off to the side, four or five years old, Peterson said, who jumped up and went running across the reception area to greet a young man coming down the, uh, you know, into the reception area from the incoming flight. And he says, the little boy says, Abba, Abba, Abba! And jumped up into his father's receiving arms. And Peterson and I said, I learned right there in those four, few seconds more about this word that I had been puzzling about and studying about and reading about, journaling about, writing about, all of these things. He said, I learned more about that word right then than in uh, all of my studies. And that's it. You know, this is what, but we have to believe that in order to make any sense of all the rest. Thank you, Father, in the name of our Son, or your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has won this privilege for us. Amen.